Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Pray with me. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that we need you. Father, every hour, every minute, every moment of our lives, we need you. Our lives, our times, they are in your hands. And so, Father, we come before you recognizing our utter dependence upon you. And so in that dependence, we also understand that we can't understand your word apart from you. And we ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would give us wisdom. We ask that you would help us to apply your truth in the right way. Father, we pray that you would transform us by your word and make us more into the image of your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. And we started Habakkuk last week, and we went through chapter 1. And if you missed last week, let me encourage you to go back, give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or at our website, you can view it, or on Facebook, you can go back, you can watch last week's sermon, uh, just to kind of get caught up. But I just want to give you a brief synopsis of what has happened up to this point. Habakkuk was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he prophesied in the nation of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. At that time, Israel was the northern kingdom, and Judah was the southern kingdom. And so he prophesied there in Judah, there the southern kingdom, that is where Habakkuk, or what Habakkuk was, who Habakkuk was prophesying to. And you find that one of the things that he talks about in chapter 1 is that Habakkuk has gone before God, and he is complaining to God, and he says, God, the nation of Judah has turned against you. They have they are ignoring your law. He says the law is paralyzed. We talked about this last week. The law literally is chilled. It is frozen. No one's paying attention to your law. No one's doing what you tell them to do. There's injustice everywhere. People are committing violent crimes against each other. All these things are happening among the people who say they are your people, God. God, why don't you do something about that? And then God answers. And he tells Habakkuk, I am going to do something about that. I am going to send the Chaldeans. Another way of, of viewing that is I'm going to send the Babylonians. That's the same people. I'm going to send the Babylonians and they are going to come from the north and they are going to invade Judah. They're going to take over. They're going to destroy everything. They're going to take your possessions as their own and they are going to take you as slaves back into their nation. And Habakkuk says, wait, 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 time out, God we're bad. Judah is rebelling against you, but the Babylonians, they're even worse. How can you take someone who is far worse than we are and use them to judge us? And that's the, the situation that Habakkuk is complaining to God about. God, this makes no sense. How does that work? And so Habakkuk voices this complaint, and then he's waiting for God to answer. 
And so today I want us to look at that very thing. What do we do when God answers your complaint? What do we do when we complain to God or we voice a concern to God or we're, we're looking for God to make a move, we're looking for God to do something and God finally answers what is the heart set, what's the mindset that we need to have going into that. And Habakkuk chapter 2, the first four verses that we're looking at today, gives us an outline. And we're going to look at God starting to respond in verse 4 of chapter 2. Then next week, we're going to pick up with a more expanded uh, response that he has as he explains things in more detail. But in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk writes, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will, he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So what are some things that we get from these four verses about when God answers our complaint, some of the things that we are to bear in mind? Well, the first one is this. We are to remain humble when God corrects. When God corrects, we remain humble. Look at verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, there are two schools of thought there. One is that he is speaking metaphorically. I'm going to watch what God is going to say like a watchman is watching from the wall. I'm going to go up uh, metaphorically on the tower and look out and wait for God to respond, meaning he's expectant for God to respond. Some other commentators have said that maybe Habakkuk physically went up on that wall surrounding the city. And he went up on top of the wall and he went up to the watchtower and he actually physically received the answer there on the watchtower. Some have gone so far to say maybe he was standing at the very wall and he was looking at the very wall that the Babylonians would eventually lay siege to. Well, we don't know uh, specifically which one of those it was, but the bottom line is Habakkuk is waiting for God to answer and Habakkuk is humble about this, waiting for God's correction. That last phrase, what I will answer concerning my complaint. Some translations have this, what I will answer when he corrects me. That's the basic idea of those words. When God corrects me, what am I going to say? So Habakkuk is already going up, realizing I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure I'm not right about everything but I just don't know exactly how wrong I am. And so I'm going to go and I voice my complaint to God and God is going to answer. And when he does, I'm going to see what I do when he corrects me. How I respond when God responds to me. And, and we should welcome that correction of God. Now, I'm not saying that it's pleasant. But we should welcome God's correction and welcome it in a humble way. This is what Jeremiah prayed. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24. Correct me, O Lord. And then he says, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. 
God, correct me. Line me up with your word. Line me up with your will. But do so out of justice. Show some mercy when you do that. Because if you do it in anger, you may blip me out of existence. So, so be merciful. Show mercy. Show justice. But at the same time, Lord, correct me. Line me up with you. Well, why can we ask God, God, please correct me if I'm wrong? Because God does it out of love. God always corrects his children out of love. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, we find this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God's correction is always done out of a heart of love. God's correction is always done because God knows that's absolutely the best thing for us is to correct us and line us up with his will, line us up with his word, line us up with his heart, line us up with his plan. That's the best thing. Perhaps the best known passage concerning the discipline of God is found in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We'll start with verse 6. The writer of Hebrews writes, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. There it is again. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, that is everybody who's a child of God is disciplined by God from time to time to bring us back into right alignment with him. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You don't discipline somebody who's not your child. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The writer of Hebrews says, God disciplines us, and God's discipline is proof of our being his children. Because you don't go around randomly disciplining children who are not your own. Now, you may want to. I was in Walmart one time growing up as a kid, and I heard my mom say, somebody should jerk a knot in that kid. And I said, are you talking about me? And she said, no, not you. I said, okay, I'm good. Because we all probably, if you've been around very long, maybe you've had a knot jerked in you. And you know that those kind of knots jerked in you are not untied very easily. And so especially the ones my mom jerked into us. And so you find that you just don't go around willy-nilly disciplining children at random. Why? Because they're not your kids. But yet God disciplines his children. He always disciplines his children out of love to bring them back in right alignment with his will. And so you also find that the writer of Hebrews mentions that we had earthly fathers who disciplined us as it seemed good to them at the time. Meaning that there are times that we are disciplined. We may be disciplined by our earthly fathers. We may be disciplined by our earthly parents. And at some points in time, they may get it wrong. But yet, even if they get it wrong, God's discipline toward us is always, always right. I remember one time I was talking to my parents, and I mentioned my mom, and I said, you know, I told her later in life, I said, you know, growing up, there were some times that I got disciplined, and I didn't deserve it. 
And she said, but the way I have it figured is there were times that you did not get disciplined and you did. I said, this is true. And she said, so weigh that out. I mean, did you, did you come out to the good? I said, actually, I came out pretty good because if you had known everything, there's no telling I would have been disciplined. She said, well, consider it credit. So that's, that's kind of how it worked out for me. But even if our earthly parents discipline us and we have some degree of respect for them and they did it as best they knew how, how much more so should we honor our heavenly father who always disciplines us in the right way? God never disciplines us in the wrong way. God never disciplines us out of anger that's a little too far one way. He never disciplines us by being too lax in the other way. God always disciplines us in exactly the right way. And so therefore, we can remain humble before him whenever God corrects us. Now, how does God correct us? Well, God can use anything at his disposal to correct us. God may use a situation to give us correction. He may put us in a difficult situation to bring that correction. God may use people in our lives, maybe having hard conversations, to discipline us and correct us. But the primary tool that God uses to discipline us and correct us is His Word. This is what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and then finally for training in righteousness. For teaching, for reproof, for correction. Reproof is when you point out something that is wrong. When you reprove something, it's like somebody saying, you are on the wrong track. You are walking down the wrong path. That's reproof. What is correction then? Correction is getting that person back on the right path. The word correction there in the Greek, the idea is setting up something that has fallen over. So reproof points out the problem. Correction actually fixes the problem. And the word of God is profitable both for pointing out where we've gone astray and the word of God is profitable for getting us back on the right track. So we find that we are to remain humble before God whenever he corrects us. Just as Habakkuk said, I'm going, to, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to watch and I'm going to expect God to answer me. And when he answers me, I'm going to see what I'm going to respond to him, how I'm going to respond to him. Is there some area in your life maybe that, that you're wrestling with that? That you're wrestling to remain humble under God's correction? One thing that you'll find pretty quickly is that God has all the time in the world to get you back in line with him. Sometimes I think about how much time I have wasted trying to fight God instead of just listening to God and just doing what he said, even though sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we are to remain humble when God corrects. Secondly, we are to wait patiently for God's certainty. There are so many things that we don't know, but God knows them with certainty. God has complete certainty about everything. There is nothing that appears on the horizon that God looks at and scratches his head and says, I'm going to have to work on this one. I'm going to have to think about this one. I'm going to have to figure this one out. Get back to me later because I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. That never occurs. So we have God's certainty and we are to wait patiently for God's certainty to come about and be seen. Look at verse two. 
And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God begins by telling Habakkuk, write out this vision and I'm going to bring it to pass. Now you find in verse two, that last phrase, he says, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. There are two major ways of viewing that. And it's been the source of debate about which one it is, but they both essentially say the same thing. Some people say that what God meant in that phrasing there was to tell Habakkuk, when you write down this vision, make it so plain and so clear what I'm, what I'm telling you, write it down very clearly and plainly so that the runner someone who is transmitting the message, like they read the message and they're like, got it, and they run off to tell someone that they can run with it really fast and they won't forget it. Other commentators believe that this means essentially write it down so plainly that the person who reads it can just read it really fast and really clear and get it on that first reading. And so whichever one that is, whether it's communicating to make it easy for a messenger or whether it is make sure somebody can read it clearly and very quickly, whichever one it is, the same basic meaning is there. Plainly, clearly write down what I'm telling you so it's easy to grasp. That's the idea. And so we find that God says this, the, the vision awaits its appointed time. It's not here yet, but there is an appointed time. There's a time where it's going to come to pass. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We are to wait patiently for God's certainty. We can wait on God because God's good. Even in the waiting, God is still good. You find in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, Isaiah writes, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The Lord is a Lord of justice. He's always going to do what is right. And so we can wait on him. If God is right in all of his working, then that means God is also right in the waiting. God can be as absolutely right when he makes you wait. Well, why is God making me wait? Because it's the right thing, but I don't like it but it's still the right thing. God is just in every way. He's just in his working. He's just in the waking in the waiting. He's just in all of these times. He's completely and totally a God of justice. And it's good for us to wait on God. That's what we find in Lamentations chapter three, verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's one of my problems. It may be your problem too. We don't mind the waiting as long as we're able to complain during the waiting. We don't wait quietly for the Lord. We want to complain. We want to worry. We fret. Oh, I'm in the waiting and I, I'm just waiting on God. And I know he's going to come up, but I'm just going to tell you it's really hard. And I don't know how he's going to work it out. I'm really concerned. I'm really worried. 
instead of just waiting quietly for him. This is the same thing we find in Psalm 62. David writes, Psalm 62, verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. Notice what he says, for God alone. I'm not waiting for somebody else to come bail me out. I'm not waiting on the situation to change and for that to bail me out. For God alone, I'm waiting in silence. He's not complaining. He's not worried. He's not fretting. He's just waiting. Now, it doesn't mean that we're passive. Well, I'm just going to wait on God so I don't have to do anything at all. I'm just going to sit on my hands and I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do anything at all. Just got, God's got to work this out before I do anything at all. Well, waiting is rarely a completely passive type of activity we wait we wait in faith so we're trusting god we're seeking god we're listening to god we're praising god we're remembering god we're doing all of these things as we wait david continues he alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress i shall not be greatly shaken i may be shaken a little bit i may be a little bit concerned but it doesn't mean i plunge into worry it may be uncomfortable but it's not going to kill me it may, be, it may be something that puts me in a position where I have to endure, but I'm not going to throw in the towel. I won't be greatly shaken, but I'm going to wait on God. Why? Because God has that appointed time, according to Habakkuk. The vision awaits its appointed time. And notice this, it hastens to the end. Now, wait a minute. How is it going to hasten to the end if God says it's for an appointed time and it's coming later? Well, that means when God begins to work it, it comes to pass in exactly the right moment in exactly the right way. Doug Hoy, who was one of our members, uh, he, he reconciled with his ex-wife and then moved back up north to get remarried to her. And uh, Doug was, he performed here locally. Some of you probably saw him in some of the local productions at the Little Theater. And so Doug was just a great guy. And I remember when he came by my office to tell me, he said, well, I'm going to move up north and I'm going to reconcile my, with my ex-wife. We're going to get remarried. I said, that's great. He said, you know, I've been praying about this for a really long time. And I know you have too. And I said, I have. And he said, you know, the funny thing. I said, so when are you leaving? He said, oh, I mean, just like a couple of weeks. I said, wow, Doug, that happened quick. And then he just smiled and he said this, with God, things happen suddenly, even if it takes a long time. I thought, that's really good, Doug. With God, everything happens, things happen suddenly, even if they take a long time. You may wait a long time on something, but when it's the right time, God brings it to pass in an instant. In a moment, God begins to move. And so God tells Habakkuk, wait on it. Just wait on it. It's for an appointed time, but it's going to hasten to its end when that time comes. It's going to come to pass in a very quick manner when everything begins to fall into place. If it seems slow, he says, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And since we're waiting on God and we're waiting patiently, you know one of the things we need? We need courage. We have to have courage during that time of waiting. We have to have courage to wait, be brave enough to trust God, but we also need to be encouraged. That's the idea. We need to be encouraged as we're waiting on God. We're encouraged by his word. We're encouraged by his faithfulness. We're encouraged that we can depend upon him in every way. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That let your heart take courage is sandwiched right in there between the wait for the Lord statements. Wait for the Lord, be of good courage, be strong, endure, be patient in the waiting. 
wait for the Lord. In Psalm 130, starting with verse 5, psalmist writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Notice what he says, in his word I hope. I'm, I'm waiting on God and I'm hoping in his word. I'm placing my confident and favorable expectation in his word, in what he says. I'm going to wait for him. And I'm looking for him more than the watchman wait for the morning, just as that watchman would be up on the wall and the end of his, of his watch would come around at dawn and he's looking out, waiting for the sun to start peeking above the horizon. And, and he's waiting on that and he's waiting and he's watching and he's waiting and he's watching because also when the sun would come up and daylight would break across the land, they would be more safe from maybe invaders because now it's daylight instead of darkness and so they'll be able to see clearly and so he's waiting he's waiting for God to work waiting for that dawn to occur so he's able just to rest in God even in the darkness waiting but he's expectant and he's waiting for God to move where is it in your life maybe you're waiting for God to move maybe you've had maybe you've had a complaint or maybe you've had a prayer maybe you've had a concern and you've prayed and you've asked and you've begged and you've waited and you've waited and you've waited. God heard and God will work when it's time. When it's the right time, God will work. Wait on it. Wait for him. He's trustworthy, so you can wait on him. You can expectantly wait on him. Don't give up in your waiting. Wait patiently for God's certainty. And then finally, we are to live by faith in relationship with God. As we're waiting for God to respond, and then when God responds, we're to continue to live by faith and live by faith in relationship with him. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God is contrasting people here. The proud, the proud who depend upon themselves, their soul is puffed up within themselves. They are depending upon themselves, and therefore their soul is not upright. Their soul is not lined up with God. Their soul is off kilter because they are consumed with self. But then he contrasts that with the righteous. The righteous are going to live by their faith. The, some translations, the just shall live by faith. That word just and righteous, the same idea. The righteous person, the just person, the person who has a relationship with God, that person is going to live by faith. Now, you've heard me define faith multiple times. A kind of working definition of faith is that we receive a report from God and then we respond in the right way. We hear from God, we receive from his word, we read his word, we take his word as absolute truth, and we live like it's absolutely true because it is. That's faith. If we didn't get a word from his, from his word and we just decide, I'm just going to go do something and I'm just going to believe enough that that's the right thing to do. Well, that's not faith because it's not based on the word of God. Well, on the flip side, if I read the Word of God and I receive from the Word of God, but I don't live like it, that's not faith either. So it's based upon receiving the Word of God, and then I respond to Him in the right way. And someone who has a relationship with Him does just that. The righteous shall live by his faith. The reason that we find He draws this contrast between people who are righteous and living by their faith and people who are living out of a heart of pride is pretty simple. Whenever you trust out of a prideful heart, if you trust anything or anyone other than God, 
That means you're trusting something or someone that will be temporary. And if you trust and place your faith in something that is temporary, when that temporary thing ends, when that temporary thing passes, your faith ends and passes with it. So if you place your faith in something that's temporary, that means when that thing leaves, dies, fades, departs, so too your faith goes with it. Which is why our faith must be grounded in someone who is eternal. Someone who never changes. Someone who is a rock. Someone who is completely and totally dependent. I mean, we can totally and completely depend upon him. He's not dependent on us. We're dependent upon him. Someone who, who completely and totally knows everything, has all power, can do all things. He knows all things. We place our faith in God and God alone. And we do that by relationship with him. You find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, well-known verse, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Our walk of life, our day-to-day -day activity is based upon faith, based upon receiving a report from God and responding to him in the right way. It's not based on what we see. It's not based on what we see in the material world around us. It is based upon the word of God and trusting that he is true. Now, when we start looking at this verse, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, you find that that phrase is mentioned in the New Testament. Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament on a few occasions. I just want to look at two of them kind of as we close. First one is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We are not justified. Justified means that you are in right standing with God. Your sins are dealt with. You're in right standing before God. It's a legal term. No one is declared not guilty. No one is declared innocent of their sins by the law. That is, we can't do enough. We can't avoid certain things and then cling to certain things and put that on a grand cosmic scale and weigh it out so that our good outweighs our bad. And that is what is going to get us in right standing with God. That's not how it works. We are justified by the blood of Christ. It's evident no one is justified before God by the law, following the vows and the thou shalt nots. That's not what makes you righteous. For the righteous shall live by faith. Well, how do we gain that righteousness? It's through the blood of Jesus. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. Can I just tell you the thing that blows my mind when I start thinking about it? This is what blows my mind. And the more I think about it, the, and the, the, the more I ponder it, the more amazed I always am. That we, in our left in our natural state, we're out of right relationship with God because of sin. And so here's Jesus, and Jesus is in perfect relationship with his Father, completely and totally perfect relationship for all eternity. And then Jesus comes, and he lives his life here on earth, and then he dies on the cross, 
And in that time where he's dying on the cross and he's taking the penalty for our sin, not that he's sinful, but he's taking the penalty for our sin, God the Father turns away from his own son. In that moment on the cross, when Jesus was tasting the full wrath of the sin of all humanity, something happened in the Trinity that had never happened before, and that is God the Father turned his face away from his only son, with whom he had had a completely imperfect relationship with, complete and total perfect union with, and he turns his face away from him. So that afterwards, if we believe in what Jesus did there on the cross, then we too can experience this incredible relationship with God the Father, and Jesus is forsaken by his father on the cross so that if we believe in him and trust in him and surrender to him we will never be forsaken get your mind around that for a moment that the son of god took our penalty upon himself and temporarily was separated from his father so that we if we surrender to him and trust in him by faith we will never be separated from his father that blows my mind. Not only that, when you think about what the Bible says that we have been given the righteousness of Christ, if we are adopted into the family of God, then we are given Jesus' own righteousness. It's been given to us. The same righteousness that Jesus has. The complete and total perfect standing before God the Father for all eternity has been given to us. The same perfect standard that Jesus has before God the Father is now given to us and we have that same righteousness that was given to us. So we now have that same kind of relationship with God the Father. So if you look back in the past of Jesus, how long has he been righteous? Forever. It's an eternal righteousness. Which means when we receive the righteousness of Jesus applied to our lives and God looks at us, he sees the eternally past pleasing life of Jesus. That means when he looks at you, if you're in Christ, he doesn't look back and say, oh, I remember 1982 when you did this and this and this and this, and I'm telling you, wow, it just grieves my heart every time I think of it. That's not what he sees. He sees that you were righteous back then, six months ago. You were eternally righteous applied back 1982 or on back and on back all the way back through all eternity your righteousness is the same righteousness of christ and christ's righteousness is eternal that blows my mind and if i have that righteousness and the righteous shall live by faith that means i am putting one foot in front of the other that means my walk of faith, my life of faith, my whole lifestyle as a Christian is wrapped up in the fact that I have received a report from the word of God and that I am responding to him in the right way and saying, yes, Lord, that is what I believe because you said it and that settles it. Not as some people have said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, God said it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not, that settles it because God said it, that's it. And so the righteous shall live by faith. And if you are in relationship with him, you have the perfectly pleasing righteousness of Christ applied to your life. 
And God looks out through eternity past and says, that child of mine is eternally pleasing to me. Not because of something we did, not because of something we didn't do, but because of what Christ did. Let me give you one more time where that phrase is mentioned. It's in Romans chapter, six, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is, salvation uh, came to the Jews first. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From one person receiving faith to another person receiving the faith. From one person surrendering to Christ to another person surrendering to Christ. From faith to faith, but not only that, from person to person, but also in our own hearts. As we grow in our understanding of faith and we trust God more and more and more as our lives go on and more and more we're growing into the likeness of Christ and more and more we're, we're reveling in that righteousness that he's given us and more and more and more we're saying, God, I trust you in this area and I trust you in this area and I know I can trust you here because I can trust you there and I'm going to trust you in every way that I know to trust you from faith to faith because the righteous shall live by faith. We live in faith and relationship with God. Do you have that relationship with God? Maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online and you, you're wrestling with that. You're saying, I don't know. Listen, if you surrender to God, you surrender to Christ, then you receive his eternally pleasing righteousness. Not because of something you did, but because of what he did. But we have to humbly come before him and recognize we don't have it. We can't bridge that gap on our own. When we could not bridge that gap on our own and we could not go to him, he came to us. And he is the one who bridged that gap there on the cross. So what are you, where are you waiting? Maybe where are you wrestling? Where is it that God's dealing with you about something? Maybe God's correcting you in some areas and, and you're wrestling with that humility. You're wrestling with surrendering completely to God in that area where you're worried or you're waiting. Maybe you've, you've voiced some complaints to God and said, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why that is happening. God, why don't you do something? And maybe God has said, just wait. You're like, I don't want to wait. But you need to wait because it's yet for an appointed time. And you've been trying that door, you've been praying and trying to get that door open and it just seems locked from the inside. Don't try to pry it open. It wouldn't, whatever's on the other side of that door that God has waiting on you, if, even if you could pry open or kick open that door, if you could see what's on the other side right now, it wouldn't be ready. At the right time, in the right way, God will help you take that next step. And God will give you the freedom to do that when it's time. But what do we do in the meantime? We remain faithful. We remain expectant. We remain humble when he corrects us. And we continue to live in a faith relationship with God through Jesus. That's how we are to respond to him as he responds to us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you just don't Tell us, figure it out yourselves. Thank you that you give us. God, thank you for your direction. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your correction, even though that's hard. But Father, it's, it's 
for our good. It's for your glory. Father, thank you for the waiting. Father, as we wait on you, we recognize that if we will wait on you, you will always give us what is best for eternity. Father, there are people here, there are people watching, there are people listening who are waiting on you in some areas. And the waiting is hard. And they don't like it. And it's difficult. Many people have been waiting for a long time for something. Father, encourage their hearts that you're always going to, even in your waiting, you're always going to give them what's best for eternity. Father, help us to trust you. May we see you clearly from your word, and then in doing so, may we respond to you in the right way. May we not try to force your hand, but may we not live with a passive mindset. May we live in such a way that is expectant and that is giving you praise and that is seeking you. And that even if we're waiting in silence, that we praise you loudly. So Father, I just pray now for anybody here who may be wrestling through something. Maybe they're wrestling with an answer you've given. Father, I pray that they'd respond to you in humility. Pray they would wait. Pray that they would continue to just walk in that faith relationship with you. Father, there may be people watching or listening or here this morning that may say, I, I don't have a relationship. I don't think I have a relationship with God. I've never surrendered to Jesus. Father, today, I pray today would be the day that that person would say, I, I need you, Jesus. And they would surrender their life to you. Father, you sent your son to live a perfect life and die a death in our place on the cross. And after he died, he rose again on the third day, showing that you were satisfied with that sacrifice. And Father, I pray that today, today, that by faith, someone would say, I, I surrender to Jesus. I can't do it myself. I can't bridge that gap myself. I'm asking Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And I want to live for him. And Father, in that moment, you will give them the righteousness of Jesus himself. And their sins are washed away and they are viewed as eternally pleasing to you. What an incredible truth, God. Father, I just pray, whatever decision we need to make today, whether it's following Christ or whether it's just saying to you, okay, Lord, I'll wait. Okay, Lord, I will respond to you as you're correcting. Okay, Lord, I will take that next step of faith, whatever that looks like. I trust you. I'm going to trust your word. Father, I pray that we would be found faithful to what you've called us to do next. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.